Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February, and it's a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what it gets them motivated to explore this amazing community and all of its potential. This week, the Lambda Days program has been published. All their awesome speakers have confirmed their participation, and the tickets are selling like hotcakes. 39 talks, 3 tracks, 2 days, and an after-party in between. David Turner, John Hughes and Mary Sheeran, Kevin Hammond, Heather Miller, Vizlav Bartoski, and Rob Martin will be speaking in Krakow. And this is just the beginning of their lineup. Check out what awesome talks will take place at Lambda Days around the subjects like FP, Erlang, F-Sharp, Haskell, HPC, Elixir, Elm, JavaScript, CSP, Miranda, Scala, Clojure, Akka, and Rusk. And as part of a partnership with AGH University of Science and Technology and a gesture of general awesomeness on behalf of their speakers, this year they want to offer you something special. Free functional workshops. Visit www.lambdadays.org to register for the conference and the workshops. And if you'd like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at fngeekery on Twitter for a code for 15% off the ticket price. CatsConf 2 will be taking place in Dublin, Ireland on the 18th of February. CatsConf has a single-track, not-for-profit conference with hands-on workshops. With an amazing lineup, it looks to be an exciting conference. Visit catsconf.com, that's K-A-T-S-C-O-N-F dot com, for more information and to register. Closure D has been announced and will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th. Early bird tickets have sold out, but regular tickets are still available, and you can get a discount when you purchase your tickets for BombCop. For more information and to register, visit www.closured.de. The day before Closure D on the 24th of February in Berlin, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the ranch. For more information about the conference, visit bobconf.de, that's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. Elixir Days is coming up on March 2nd and 3rd in St. Augustine, Florida. Early registration is now open, and the conference includes keynotes by Prag Dave Thomas and Sasha Yurch. Visit elixirdays.com. That's elixir, D-A-Z-E, dot com, to keep updated for more information and to register. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural events March 27th through the 30th. The unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops, worked in the day between these sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. Erlang and Elixir Factory 2017 is on the 23rd and 24th of March. This factory includes its tutorials day on the 25th of March and training on the 20th through the 22nd and 27th through the 30th of March. Early bird tickets are on sale through February 26th. To keep updated with information, visit www.erlang-factory.com slash sfbay2017. The Flatmap Oslo call for presentations is open through March 1st. FlatMap Oslo is a FP conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM, taking place on May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 2017.flatmap.no slash CFP to learn more. Announcements of speakers are being done on Twitter at at FlatMapOslo. Elm Europe will be taking place on June 8th through the 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zaplicki and Richard Feldman will be speaking. The early bird tickets are currently available, but there is no telling how long they will last. 
For more information and to register and to submit your talk, visit elmeurope.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeeker.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Mohit Tate. Mohit, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, Proctor. It's so awesome to be on Functional Geekery. So, my name is Mohit Tate. I am a programmer and consultant, and I am bootstrapping a small consultancy based out of Mumbai and Pune in India. I am also the organizer of Inclosure, India's first closure conference, which we had back in November. And I'm here to talk about functional programming and why it excites me. And so Enclosure was one of the things that helped put you on the radar. I'd seen a couple of other people, and I believe they brought you up, and I started following you and saw Enclosure. So I wanted to get you on to talk about holding a closure conference in one of those places that A, isn't a primary closure conference, mm-hmm. organized pretty much by yourself outside of the Cognitech community, and B, just what gets you to want to actually start a closure conference where you are and go through the work that I've heard putting on a conference is. Let's start out with what's your background? How did you get into software and start first start getting into the field? Sure. So I have a bachelor's degree in, in computer engineering. And um, after that, I came over to the U.S. for a master's degree. So I went to Cornell and got a master's in computer science. And all these years of college and I had never been exposed to functional programming. So I just got a traditional job at Oracle where I was developing server technology for complex event processing. And this was way before Kafka Streams. You know, Kafka Streams these days is a cool new thing. But uh, CEP back then, uh, what we were trying to do was pretty interesting. We were We were creating a query language for streaming data. So you could write queries like alert me if the moving average of uh, Microsoft goes above a certain number and it would just listen to the feed from the stock market and alert you. So that was my entry job. Pretty exciting. But I quickly realized that Oracle was not really the place for me. And I kind of, at, at about two and a half years into my first job, I kind of had this moment of, do I really want to be a software engineer? Is this really what I want to do? And I decided to take a break. So I took a sabbatical for six months and I went and traveled around the world. I volunteered in uh, Ghana, which is a place in West Africa, back around South Africa and Namibia and Botswana, and then headed back to India. And it was around this time frame that I found out about this amazing book. Um, so actually, while I was on my journey, I was kind of always asking myself, what is it that I really want to do? Do I even really want to be a programmer? And the answer consistently was, yes, I do, because it's something that I love doing. But it's something that I need to get better at and, and probably find the right people to work with where I'll enjoy doing it. So when I came back to India, I did two things. So one, the first thing I did was uh, started reading more, started getting back into 
making myself a better programmer. And the other thing I did is I teamed up with my friend back then. Her name was Galti. And we kind of had this conversation about how the education system in the U.S. was so much better than the system in India. We decided that what we wanted to do is try and fix that in our own little way. So we decided to create a company that would make engineering education more fun. So back then in 2010, we started something called Rebel Guru. And this was focused on providing educational content. This is, at least in India, this predates Khan Academy and all the books that you see out there. So what we were trying to do was we were trying to create content that would be fun to consume. And we were distributing it via a physical book and a DVD with video lectures on it. So internet access in India was fairly limited and slow. So streaming stuff on YouTube or any other a video provider was, you know, it, it, you could do it for like a short clip or something, but doing a proper one hour lecture on it was impossible. So we went around the city of Mumbai and we created a book on Java and one on data structures. And it was while I was doing this that I started reading a lot of other things as research on how to teach better, how to teach these concepts. And I also met some interesting people here in the community. So one of those people was a person called uh, Baishampayan Ghosh. He also goes by the name of BG. And he was the one who really introduced me to Clojure. And around that time is when I started reading the SICP, which is the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. And that book, I think, was pretty much life-changing for me. I wished I had read it like five years ago. Or even studied it when I was at college. So SICP is what introduced me to functional programming. And what it showed me is that programming is actually about building small, small things and then composing them together and making bigger things out of them. And that way of thinking, it was a very mathematical way of thinking, right? Functions that do something well and make sure they're small functions and then you can pass them around as values and use them compose them together and things like that. That was really a mind-bending experience at that time. And that book is written in Scheme. So that was my first introduction to a lispy sort of language. And then what happened after that was I joined a company called ThoughtWorks in India, uh, in Pune. And at ThoughtWorks, again, I was working on a more traditional web stack. So I was doing Ruby on Rails, JavaScript. But this this idea of functional programming and, you know, doing things a certain way stuck with me. And I was always looking out for opportunities to do that. So the two years at ThoughtWorks were really interesting because that's where I got exposed to these ideas of continuous delivery, agile development done right. And I also picked up a Ruby on Rails, uh, just a web development in general. After that, I got back in touch with BG. And interestingly enough, BG had stuck to doing closure at his startup, which was now called HelpShift. And HelpShift was building this new generation uh, mobile CRM. So the idea was that you should be able to offer a help experience to people inside your mobile app so that they can chat with your customer support. They don't leave the app. And they had built their entire backend in closure. So here was an awesome opportunity to join a startup that was going through a solid growth phase and to use closure in production. And so that's where I joined the team. And that's where I got a chance to actually work with closure professionally. So that's how I got into closure. And I worked at HelpShift for about a year. And then I started the 
decided to do something on my own. So uh, since then, I've been consulting. Again, in my consulting business, I haven't really had a chance to use Clojure, uh, which is something that I was telling you about. I want to use it all the time, but being in India and I've mostly been focused on the local market, the traditional response that I would hear if I tried to even evangelize Clojure would be that, where am I going to find Closure engineers and these are companies that, that don't necessarily have the financial strength to say that, okay, we'll bring people in and we'll train them. So I haven't really been able to do closure on a daily basis after that. So the idea behind doing enclosure was that we need to create a community. We need to bootstrap a community here in India so that closure can become more mainstream so that we can actually start telling people that, hey, you should invest in Clojure. It will improve your productivity. You will have better, more maintainable code bases. And the Clojure community in India is now big enough that you have a talent pool from which you can hire. So you're not really, you know, doing something way off. And I also wanted to do the conference as a sort of an experiment because a lot of us who are in the closure community, which is a pretty small close knit group, we all feel that closure in the in, in the US and, and Europe is uh, going towards the mainstream. So India has some catching up to do, and and it was sort of an experiment. Like we felt that it's a good time to do a conference and see what the interest levels are, to see how many people are going to show up, things like that. So I was pleasantly surprised. We had 90 people at the conference, which was a number that exceeded my expectations. And it being the first conference of first closure conference in India, uh, it, it went off pretty well, pretty smoothly. So I'm hoping that what this does is it, it kickstarts the community in some sense. One good thing that has happened is that the Bangalore closure meetup has started up again. Uh, so they're, they're doing, uh, meetups pretty regularly. We had a closure meetup in Pune, which is also probably going to get restarted soon. And I'm hoping that we continue to do this and, and sort of bootstrap the closure community. So those of us who want to work with closure on a day-to-day basis, you know, get more opportunities to do so. So that's a great rundown. And there's a lot to unpack there. So starting out, did you have any background with programming before you took your college courses? Or was that something you came in and... It's kind of wanting to set the stage because it sounded like you were doing Java and then you went to Ruby and JavaScript. So what was your background? Did you actually just start in college or did you play around with some other stuff beforehand? So uh, I actually probably got my first computer in the 10th grade or so. So it was just a couple of years before college. And when I got it, I was mainly into games and stuff. So I didn't really do any real programming, I wouldn't say. My first exposure to programming was in engineering college in India. And so typically Indian engineering colleges have this structure of they'll start you, uh, they'll, they'll start with uh, either C or C++ and then move to Java. And that's about the only programming languages that you get exposed to. Some of the colleges these days are teaching in Python. But yeah, that so so my first exposure to programming came in engineering college and then Cornell. So you... Start with the Java. You start with the C or C++ as well. Right. You moved to Oracle, and I know they're a big Java shop, having spent a little bit of time at Oracle before I decided Oracle wasn't for me as well. Uh-huh. You then make it to ThoughtWorks. 
and do Ruby. But around that same time, you also got exposed to the structure and interpretations of Computer Programs book. Correct. What were some of those things there that helped you latch on? So you'd been doing Java. You kind of had some exposure to Ruby maybe at the beginning at that time or slightly overlapping. What about the book of SICP made you jump in and say, oh, yeah, there's really something here. This is really cool. I want to dig in more and understand it. So I think the book is written in very simple to understand language. I think that was the first thing that struck me about how they demystified programming. So when I was doing Java, you know, there's so much written out there about the patterns that you should be using to write good object-oriented programs, the big gang of four book, effective Java. All these books, they'll talk about how you should not do certain things and how you should do certain things. And it's all pretty complicated because it starts from this notion of how do you build good class hierarchies or how do you build objects that are representative of some kind of hierarchy. And when I came to SICP, there were none of these notions of grand structure from the start, right? It went from, let's build something simple, and then let's build something a little more complicated, and then let's build something a little more complicated. So that was, I think, something that told me that programming doesn't have to be this complex beast of patterns and classes and objects. It can actually be something far simpler. And I think the SICP videos where Abelson and Sussman are doing this training at, uh, I think, HP or someplace, I don't remember exactly where, but those videos were pretty awesome too because they would really start from scratch and they would build something up and it just fit my brain really well. I don't know how else to explain it, but it just fit. It felt like a more natural way of programming for me as compared to the object-oriented world of Java. So I think that's what really made me feel that. uh, Also, another thing being that syntax and everything around syntax just went away. So in the first chapter, I think, of SICP, they talk about how scheme is evaluated, right? And the fact that the internal representation of the language uses the data structures in the language, right? So you have S expressions, which are just represented as lists. And then you evaluate those lists by saying the first thing in the list has to be a function and everything else is the arguments to that function. And that gives you a really simple mental model of how things are going to be evaluated and and what the results of things are going to be. I think that also made me feel like, okay, this fits, this makes sense. This is more natural to me, if you will. And that's why I guess the bug got stuck in my head. And and ever since, I've been wanting to play with functional programming and functional programming languages. And then as you dig in to that and start learning these ideas, you make the transition to Ruby, so you kind of jump another language as well. And like anybody who's done a language for a little while, you start to develop scars around a given language of saying, this is kind of a pain. There's got to be a better way. Some languages make that trade-off for other scars that they give you. But you mentioned the class hierarchy and thinking of the class hierarchy first in Java. But as you start to look into functional programming and then start to do Ruby and start to get more experience with that, what were some of those things you were finding aside from just the object-oriented class hierarchy first design and some of those patterns that made you even more enthused about functional programming as you're doing this, since you're still not doing it yet, but you're still researching it? Right. So this is an interesting question because 
when I got into ThoughtWorks, I actually got exposed to a really good way of writing object-oriented programming, which is a test-driven development. And the Ruby community was pretty strong back in those days. There was a ton of material out there about how to design your code better. I actually really liked coding in Ruby coming from a Java background. I think one of the things I believe is that every language creator has a philosophy and that reflects in the developer experience. So Matt, who is the creator of Ruby, I think he's always optimized it to be a fun language to develop with. And I think that shows when you start coding with Ruby. But as you said, that there are trade-offs everywhere. Uh, so I think coding with Ruby, doing test-driven development and pair programming were some of the things that I was doing at ThoughtWorks. And the combination of these things and pairing with more experienced folks taught me a lot about how to approach this idea of designing good objects. And then we were working in Rails at the time. So the framework is pretty opinionated about how you should structure everything. So that was an interesting approach also in the sense that sometimes constraints are good and you want to be in those constraints because they take away some of the decision making from you and you just need to fit your mental model into the framework. And after you do that for a while, you kind of realize that, okay, while these constraints are good, maybe all the ideas are not the best ideas in the world. And the other thing about Ruby that's interesting is that they have this notion of lambdas and procs. So you can do a map or a, a filter in Ruby and pass it a block and it's effectively like your map or filter enclosure. So I was actually able to use some of the things that I had learned from SICP to write slightly more functional methods in Ruby, which was interesting also. Sorry, did I miss the question there? I think I just went off a little bit. No, that works. And part of what I'm getting at was knowing the difference between some OO in Java, or at least how people approach it in Java versus Ruby. And the fact that, as you mentioned, Ruby has the blocks and procs and lambdas and all the various things that are kind of sort of the same, but have, have their own unique spin. But if you've got that functional programming background that you're starting to develop with SICP and seeing some of these things, how were you folding that in? Was that something that was readily accepted in your group where you're like, well, let's just more blocks everywhere and we can start to be functional and we can start to be pure versus we've got these certain things, but we're going to limit this in scope to either the file open or the map reduce and some of these things versus saying, well, we've got a lot of these things. So let's take advantage of some of the stuff that we have. Right. Great point. I think it was a fairly limited use of functional programming styles or idioms. So it was mostly map reduce, filter, not even reduce that much, I guess. But I think most people on the team did not have the same exposure to functional programming. So that's where pairing as a style of programming really helps because you can talk to your pair and you can convince them that, hey, maybe we can try this here in this little method and just see if it, you know, feels better. So we would use small snippets of functional looking code in an otherwise solidly object oriented code base. But that was fun for me because I think the code did end up being more concise. And for me, at least it was way more readable that way. And if you're introducing some of these concepts and helping to push it, how did that help frame your learning? If you're having to say, okay, I now have to explain this to someone who might only cursory get the fact of passing these blocks and procs in 
in Ruby, but you're taking this, you're learning SICP, you're probably going on other journeys at that point, but then you're turning it around and explaining it. So how did that help inform your understanding? So I think every time you pair with someone, uh, I think, again, I keep coming back to pairing as a style of programming, because when you pair with someone, you're kind of forced to make a case for why you want to write something a certain way and not another way. And that kind of helps you to clarify your own concepts about why something is a better way of writing it. Specifically with map and filter, I think at least back then the argument was pretty clear that for loops are just more painful to write. And I don't even recall ever having written a for loop in Ruby actually. I think I've always just used map. So you don't have to worry about the index variables. You don't have to worry about terminating it correctly. You're just saying that I have a list. I want to transform it into another list. And this is what I want to do to each element in the list. So I'll just use a map. And, you know, when that I think is probably pretty acceptable to someone who's not done it. And even in the Ruby community back in the day, I think it was, there used to be a lot of blog posts about how to use things in the enumerable mix-in, and this is how people were doing things. So it, it was not that hard, actually, to bring these concepts in. I remember actually even reading why the Lucky Steps book, and he, I think, starts with how blocks are passed around and how variables are injected into those blocks and things. And I think the Ruby community picked up these ideas everywhere. And then at some point, you cross paths with BG, and he helps get you a place where you can start doing closure. Was that the first experience to closure, or did you have some other experience to closure looking at the Lisp from the scheme-based stuff that you were doing from SICP? What was the relationship of jumping from SICP into actually making the closure other than just going and working with BG? Right. So on my personal time, I had started doing the exercises from SICP in Clojure instead of Scheme. And that was where I first started getting into Clojure. And that was a bit of a struggle, to be honest, because I had to learn Emacs. I had to learn Par Edit. And I also had to learn Clojure. And it was all a bit overwhelming. But that's how I started getting into it. We even did a small study group at work where we were a few people who wanted to do study SICP and we got together in a room and we would go over it week on week. But I think that it, so I got into Clojure on my own personal time. I started watching videos online. Foreclosure was there, I think around, I don't remember if Foreclosure was out back then, but I think Project Euler was what a lot of people would recommend. So you go to Project Euler and start solving some of those problems in the language that you want to learn. So that's what I was doing. And what BG had done is, uh, so BG startup, they had decided that they want to use Clojure from the start. So they were a very unique proposition in India at the time. I don't think anyone else in India was even remotely doing Clojure. So I was interested in Clojure. I was doing SICP. I was studying it on my own time. And so it was kind of a natural fit when BG and I met again. And I kind of asked him, so how's it going? And it just so happened that they had some openings. and. I was able to go and work in Clojure full-time. And that's where I think, so as I got into that company, I realized how much of a difference it makes to have people around you who are actually fluent in Clojure and in the tooling around it. So the help shift was most of the engineers were using Emacs. And so that really helped me. You know, if I was ever stuck on something, I could just ask someone 
in person and they would tell me not just how to solve that problem but they would also tell me a whole bunch of other useful information so i think that really accelerated my learning curve and in just a month or so i was pretty productive with the closure and i want to get into the differences of your closure as you're starting with just learning it on your own doing the oiler projects and the like and making that transition and having that team around you and actually using closure and anger but I do want to take just a second and recognize and thank BG because similar to you, I came in to functional programming through SICP and started with Clojure. And the Planet Clojure site that BG did, I found was a great resource to just know what's going on in the community and know what's out there. So right. if he listens, thank you. If not, could you please pass that word around to BG next time you see him if you cross I paths with him? I'm meeting him the day after tomorrow, so I'll be sure to pass on the message. <laughs> but yeah, I found that was insanely valuable just because everybody's got their feet out there with all their closure learnings. And you can see, well, right. if you're not doing closure directly in the full-time job and you're still doing it on the side, you can start to get those lessons learned from others. But you manage to work with a group of closure people and get in and take it from, hey, I'm doing this on the side. What I am doing may or may not be the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. How did you find that essentially sink or swim prospect as you started working there? So I think what was interesting is that we had a code review process. We had a kind of an informal setting where you could just walk up to anyone and ask them questions. So it didn't feel really a lot like a sink or swim kind of thing. It was more just read the source code and see how people have been doing things. And those sort of become the idioms and just follow those. So I think it was pretty natural for me to just get in and get productive. It didn't feel like a big challenge. What was challenging actually, surprisingly, was that, so I think legacy code in any language can be a pain. And this was a closure code base, which was, say, two to three years old. And I think writing closure is a pleasure. Reading closure can be a little hard because you have a lot of S expressions going on there and, and sometimes you're confused about, okay, what's happening here? So that was the first time I realized that, okay, when you move from the toy problems, like the math problems on Project Euler and things like that to a real production code base, it sometimes is a trade-off between the ease of writing new code versus the ease of reading old code. And that was a bit of a surprise. But yeah, I think the team and the culture was pretty helpful. And I think another big thing that was helpful for someone getting into Clojure was the Slack channel that we were running internally. Plus, I think now the Clojurean Slack is just amazing. So if you have any questions, I mean, it, it feels like the community that I got when I first joined HelpShift is now available to you as a global community. So if you have any problems, you just go on the Clojurean Slack and ask. And most often someone will help you out. So I think that's a really, really awesome development in Clojure and, and it's going to help a lot of new people come in. And so you're doing this, you're making that transition. You have your coworkers to get feedback from, but you're now using it every day. You're using it in anger. You have the chance to really find out what its warts are for, as we mentioned, every language has trade-offs. And so certain ones have their own set of warts that they say, we're going to kind of ignore this stuff because that's not core to our problem. You obviously love it enough to continue wanting to do it and put on conferences to build the community. 
What were some of those things that, as you used it in anger, that you wound up loving and falling deeply and madly in love with that wants you to continue driving this and build the community? And what were some of those things that you might have been puzzled over at first and then got or just are still like, "Mm, I try to avoid those corners? So I think uh, I'll. So this might be a long winded answer, but I'll have a go at it. So I think what really keeps me going with closure is the amazing stuff that the core team keeps coming out with sort of as language features and also the amazing stuff that the community keeps building using closure. And this is so Rich Hickey has a keynote every year, pretty much at, at the conj every year that keynote blows my mind, you know, like he, he takes a concept that you think is okay, done and dusted. And then he'll kind of say that, okay, we need to really think about this and really come up with something better. And he actually has something for you. So it's, uh, that has been amazing to me. I think the other thing that I find amazing is the awesome creative stuff that people have been doing with Clojure uh, from the community. A few examples for it uh, might be, for example, Chris Ford has this library called Leipzig, which is built on Sam Aaron's uh, overtone, right? So creating music with Clojure is like so awesomely simple. And uh, he's created this web browser-based thing called Clankmeister, which is pretty awesome also. My friend Srihari recently did a talk at Euroclosure where he talks about Carnatic music synthesis with Clojure. So Carnatic music is a style of music that's a classical music from southern India. And you should go watch his talk at Euroclosure. It's a really awesome talk. He's talking about how you can maybe go towards making little programs that generate music for you. And it sounds like authentic Carnatic music. So it's pretty awesome. The other question, I think the other part of your question was, what are some areas of closure that I've stayed away from? And I think I have pretty much stayed away from macros. <laughs> Even though I think macros are one of the most powerful feature of this language. So I, I read The Joy of Closure at some point and one of the things that it has was the first rule of macros is don't use them. If you can do it with a function, just do it with a function. And so from my perspective, I think I have this little fear of writing a macro. I don't want to write one if I can avoid it. So I try to create whenever I write closure programs, they're mostly just functions and function composition. But that's something that I'd like to learn more about how to write good macros, things like that. One thing that I got deep into while I was doing Clojure was the design of Clojure's data structures. So I did a talk at Euroclosure 2015 called What Lies Beneath, where I kind of dug into Clojure's implementation of persistent data structures, especially maps and vectors. And that was an amazing experience because I could see how Clojure was actually pathbreaking in taking some of these ideas from academia and implementing them in a real world language. And that's what I think makes Clojure so awesome that they continue to, the whole community continues to take good ideas from everywhere and assimilate them into the language, whether as core features or libraries or any sort of creative contribution. And so you get hooked on this. Apparently enough to even go do a talk at Euroclosure, which I missed out on when I was setting this up, but enough that you're saying there needs to be the community. I'm off on my own. Nobody really takes closure seriously, but let's build a community here and put on a conference and use this as a community building and be a rally point so we can see what it looks like. What kind of craziness 
started the idea and then drove you to actually finish it? And I say that as someone who's thought about it, but realized, yeah, I'm, I don't have the time investment to try and put on a conference at this point. And I'm not going to make the effort at this point to do a local conference, even though it would be nice to have one here. But you actually made the jump and put on a conference and would love to continue putting on the conferences and not, and not have just said, wow, that was interesting. I don't know that I'll do that again, but, (laughs) but are excited about it. So what was that jump that said, no, 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 I've got to do this. I've got to be crazy enough to put on a conference pretty much on my own or with a small cadre of people to help me? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I've always believed that you get the community that you deserve. Like if you want a vibrant community, you have to play a role in building it. So communities don't just happen. There's a number of things that play a role, right? I mean, you have to have a core set of people who are doing the thing that you're building the community around. But you also need someone to take the lead in organizing and making sure that people have a place where they can meet and, you know, just keep doing it until it kind of goes on autopilot. So I think the Ruby community is where I learned this from, right? So RubyConf India is something that was started, I think, in 2008 or nine. I don't remember the exact year, but that conference also started small. And back then, Ruby and Rails uh, was not as mainstream as it is today. And they started with a small conference and it grew every year until now. It's like it's a gigantic conference that happens in like a five star hotel and it's a two or three day event. And it really showed me that sometimes you just need to take a leap of faith and say, let's try this out. Let's see how it works out. And Somebody has to do it. Otherwise, you know, it, it it just doesn't happen on its own. So I was also naive enough to believe that it won't be a lot of work. It will mostly be coordinating with people. But turns out that it's a little more work than that. <laughs> but I had a little bit of experience in doing meetups and smaller events. I'd never done an event at this scale. So I probably badly underestimated how much time it would take from my side. That said, I think what was amazing was that there are now a few other companies in India that are that have adopted Clojure. So there's Nilenso in Bangalore, there is a Quintype, there is Conquer, which is a big global company, but they're doing Clojure. So I reached out to some of these folks and, and I asked them if they would be open to sponsoring an event like this. And everyone pretty much was open to it. So that was a good sign when companies are ready to invest in community building. And it just felt that it was the right time to do something like this. My personal interest in it was to, you know, try and get closure work on a full-time basis or at least build this notion of a community in India so that, you know, eventually it, it will become possible and viable to work in closure. So everything just came together. And it wasn't, again, I, I think even though I underestimated the amount of work, I would say that Organizing a really big conference is a lot, a lot of work. But if you start small and your target audience is also relatively small, then the community rallies around you and, and everyone shows up and helps you. So I had a lot of help from BG and from Idea Monk who designed the website and things like that. So I'd just say that I wanted to do this because I thought the time was right to kickstart it. And I'm hoping that the momentum continues and a similar thing had happened when I started the Pune Ruby meetup. 
So it used to happen and then it had kind of died off. And so I restarted it and then I did it for about the first five or six times. And then the other folks in the community took over and it's still going on till this day, right? They have a meetup every month. So I think sometimes you just need to start with a leap of faith and then the community just takes over and things just happen. So that's what really drove me. And I'm glad that we did it. And that was one of the things I was wondering was a lot of people go out and be like, yeah, I can start a user group or local community meeting for a given language or community. But that's something else to actually start a regional conference and go through the steps and make sure you figure out how you get real sponsors instead of just someone to host and potentially pay for pizza or whatever. Right. And as you said, you had the meeting experience. What was the difference that helped take that jump? Or what were some of those things that in your naivety, as you said, didn't think it'd be that complex that you were able to make the jump and some of those lessons learned that if anybody out there is running a local community user group now that might say, well, if you're already doing this, maybe the next logical step is to take the larger leap of faith and start a conference. So I would say that before you announce anything, it's a good idea to make sure that there are people who are willing to sponsor this and that they're serious about their commitment. And you should do the numbers in your head. Another lesson that I learned was it's almost essential to have the event management partner who takes care of logistics and audiovisual and all the million things that you don't really think about when you're doing a local meetup. Like when you're doing a local meetup, you just bring your own projector and you stick a little whiteboard or a screen somewhere and you just go. But this conference, the talks need to be recorded. They need to be on YouTube. They need to go through post-processing. There has to be coordination with speakers, with sponsors, with attendees. So it's definitely a lot more work. So it's a two-step thing. I think first, you need to talk to people who or, or corporations who might be interested in sponsoring this. And those conversations really give you a sense for whether the time is right. And most of our sponsors were very positive about it. They wanted to make this event happen. They wanted to contribute towards making it happen. And, and that, I think, is a good sign. Whereas, you know, if maybe you're getting a bit of resistance and people are a little maybe about it, then maybe you should take that as a sign that you should stick to your smaller group and not make it into a conference. The other important thing, as I said, is uh, get just get an event management partner. Get someone who will manage the logistics for you because as an organizer, there is no way you're going to be able to do everything. So get the help that you need. And if you're able to find good partners to help you like that, it really is more about uh, setting the tone for the conference maybe setting the policies for the conference and also maybe making sure that the content in the conference is of a high quality. I think that's what the organizer's role then comes down to. So that's what I would say that if you want to make the jump from a smaller meetup to a larger one, you have to get help. And you had the first one this past year, back in 2016, at the end of it, you said. Yeah. You had 90 people show up. You talked about other conferences being a big multi-day thing. Was this a one-day, one-track thing to get started? Or what did Enclosure look like when you were getting it from the overview of the conference? Yes. So this was a one-day single-track conference. We did a few things differently. So what we did is... So we had a lot of ideas uh, at the beginning. So what we were thinking is that we'll have a closure workshop, maybe a closure bridge event or something like that along with the conference. 
But I quickly realized that the logistics and the whole organizational complexity just goes up if you add one extra day. So we, we just cut that out because we said it's the first time we're doing it. Let's keep the event small and focused. And let's find out whether this is something that makes sense for the people who show up and for those of us who are organizing it. So we kept it small. So it was a single track conference with five talks. And what we wanted to do, we had some core values. Right? One of our core values was conversation. So we wanted people to come to this conference, but it should feel more like a local meetup group, right? It should feel like you're meeting fellow Clojureans and you're able to just talk to them about how they're using Clojure, what new, cool, fun, interesting library they found, or what are they writing of their own, or how are they solving problem X. I think these are the conversations that happen that give you real value from attending an event like this, more than just the talks. Talks are also awesome too, but you know, people always say to me that, hey, I could just watch the talk on YouTube. And while that is true, you can watch the talks on YouTube. Being at the conference is more about the interactions that you have during the downtimes. So we intentionally had 15 minute breaks between talks and we had two hour unsession post lunch because we wanted to make it as interactive as possible. So in these unsessions, what we did was we had some people who were more experienced Flojurians acting as uh, mentors and they would take a table. So we had round table seating uh, also to encourage conversation. So we had tables dedicated to various topics. So we had one table that was talking about uh, distributed systems. Someone was building a game using a quill. And uh, they were showing people how to build their own games, right? So I think they built a snake, which is one of the early uh, mobile games that came out. Someone was building a Twitter clone in an hour. So it was just, just to show how you can do web development with Clojure. Then we had a table where we were talking to beginners and people who are brand new to Clojure about how they can learn Clojure and things like that. So I think that went really well and that really was for me the highlight of the conference was the unsession. We also had an unsession on uh, Go the Game, which was taken by Steven from Nilenso. So I felt that the conversations went off really well. People people were happy about the unsession and the 15-minute uh, breaks also. And so I am excited to do this again next year, maybe with a slightly bigger audience. I actually enjoyed the fact that it wasn't a humongous conference because... Sometimes very large events can get overwhelming. There's so many people around. Whereas this felt more like, say, slightly bigger meetup. And as you mentioned, you still got the twinkle in your eye to do a conference next year. You sounded like you wanted it to grow at least a little bit. But are you thinking same format? What If someone's looking forward to this and said, hey, I didn't realize this. Maybe it's in relatively close to me versus going to Euro Closure or going to the U.S. for either the Conj or Closure West, if they want to keep an eye out and keep an eye out for this, what should they be thinking coming next year? What are your ideal plans for putting this on for the second year? So I think in terms of format, we probably go with the same format, but maybe add a workshop, which we wanted to do last year also, but we couldn't. So if you look at the attendees, right, I think a large percent of people who came to the conference were new to the language and they were very interested in learning about this new language. And so I think a workshop which is co-located with the conference would be a great addition for next year. So that's something that maybe we'll do. 
and also we'll maybe shift the venue to a different city in India. So we did this one in Pune. Maybe we'll do the next one in Bangalore. Bangalore is more, I think, in terms of just sheer numbers, there's a lot more programmers who live in Bangalore. Pune is probably the second biggest city for programming in India. So it was a good place to start. But yeah, it, I'm pretty sure we'll do the conference again this year. And it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to be a huge event, but it's definitely going to be slightly bigger than last year. And if people want to find out more about this, we have a Twitter handle and we also have a website. So the website is inclosure.org and the Twitter handle is in underscore closure. And I'll get those added to the show notes. And I was going to make sure we at least covered them if you didn't bring it up at the end. Yeah. So we're kind of getting close to time, but is there anything that you want to at least raise to people's attention or let people know about as they've been listening to this that you think is worth, or at least making sure the audience is aware of on some of this stuff before we start to wrap up the call? So for those of you who want to get into Closure, the Closurian Slack channel is definitely worth joining. We have India-focused channel there. It's called uh, Closure India with a hyphen in between. So if you want to come hang out there, that would be great. And if you have ideas for how maybe we can uh, make Enclosure better or how we can grow the community in India, then uh, I'd love to hear from you personally. So I'm also on Twitter at Mohit Tate. So please do ping me. And I'll get your Twitter account and we'll get... In a little bit, we'll get the rest of your ways to find you down and track you down. But you get out of enclosure. You say you get invigorated in the every time you see a conch talk and some of Rich Hickey's talks and some of these other things that come out. What about closure gets you excited today as you start to look forward to what's coming down the line in closure or what's been recently announced? And it makes you excited to work in closure and do as much in closure as you can, especially if you could get your consultancy doing closure contracts the whole time. Right. So I think spec is awesome. Again, I don't have enough experience with it to really go deep into what it can do, but closure spec. I think generative testing is another thing that I'm super excited by because it kind of changes the way you think about your tests. And test.check is something that would definitely be something I would want to use. I've been thinking about maybe using something like generative testing to do things like resiliency testing and see whether your system is resilient to some nodes going down or network partition happening. Kind of what AFIL was doing with Jepson, but more from a black box perspective. So I have these little ideas in my head that I want to keep trying out on the side. But if I get a chance to work on a real closure project, I think I'm going to end up discovering that there are a lot more libraries out there that I didn't even know about. For instance, Yada is a library that's coming out, which is kind of building on top of uh, Liberator. So the folks at Juxt are doing some really awesome stuff. Reframe is another thing that I was really excited by. So I think the front-end story for closure is pretty cool. Reframe is something that builds on top of Reagent and it does kind of data flow sort of architecture. On that note, I've, I've recently started looking at some interesting front-end uh, frameworks and languages and Elm is also a language that has really caught my fancy. So I want to sort of start learning more about functional programming with types. And so I've got the Haskell book with me now and I'm starting to learn that. 
so that is something that i'm excited about also so yeah i think there is <laughs> there is always a ton of stuff to learn and a, a ton of stuff that keeps you excited and we've talked a little bit about generative testing across a bunch of different languages i even had Reed Draper on an early episode to talk about test check but you also mentioned spec can you give the elevator pitch as you see it for spec for the people out there who aren't in the closure community but might be curious as to what kind of ideas are out there and coming out so here's what i will say so i don't think i'm really qualified to do an elevator pitch but what i will say is that when i came to help shipet i had a legacy closure code base to deal with and because you pass data around in maps sometimes it's super confusing as to what keys am i getting in like what can i do with this map or even whether this is a valid map or not and so a lot of people over time rolled their own libraries to do these things like defining contracts for your functions and for your data structures prismatic schema was one of those and i think it's nice that it's made it into the core of closure because i think it's important in a dynamic language to have some kind of safety mechanism and also some kind of mechanism for maybe generating documentation and even for the matter i think a spec is able to generate tests for you or or generate data for your tests based on the spec that you write so these are all things that give you leverage in a language like closure where you can just define a spec and then that spec can a lot of things fall out of it pretty much for free so i think this idea of data all the things it fits really well with spec where you're saying that okay this is i'm just going to have to define this one thing and then i'm going to get documentation i'm going to get testing and if i want to i'm going to get actual runtime checks on my code as well okay and that's one thing i keep forgetting because every time i think about it i think about it as a progressive typing system where you add your type specs but i keep forgetting that there is the extra features of it is just data. So there's a bunch of other stuff that can process that data, such as documentation and the like, and not just the progressive type checker. Right. So we've covered a bit. I know there were some other topics that had we had time that would have been interesting to dig into. I uh, would not be. But at this point, is there anything that you want to make sure that you plug? You mentioned enclosure should be on the radar for a second edition coming up later this year is there anything else you want to plug or promote or just make sure people know about you mentioned the closure in slack which i'll get a link to if i can find the invite link in the show notes but what other things do you have to let people know about or anything else that you're going on that you want to make sure people know about So I think there is another interesting conference that we do in India it's called Functional Conf it's not closure focused it's more about the family of functional programming languages and that happens in Bangalore every year around the September October time frame so that's something that you should watch out for they usually have some pretty awesome speakers coming down for that and the Bangalore closure group is pretty active they've started again and I think that's If you are in Bangalore or the surrounding areas definitely do check out the Bangalore closure group join them for their pickups and yeah that's about it and then where can people find you online you mentioned your twitter account what are the other places to find out and keep updated as you progress and if you're doing any updates about your learnings or sharings or the like 
Right. So I've started blogging on Medium recently. So if you're interested in following me there, I'll be blogging about my learning journey and the community in India. I also hang out on the Closerian Slack. I go by the nickname of Pasta Farai. So you'll find me there. Yeah, I think Twitter and Slack are where you should come talk to me. And Medium with the same name as my Twitter account. So medium.com slash Mohit is where I blog. And I'll get all those links added to the show notes as well. Thanks. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Mohit, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Pleasure finding out more about your journey and about the way of thinking about building the community that prompted you to put the Closure Conference on in India and start looking at setting the foundation and building that community there. And when it comes time to announce it, feel free to reach out and we'll get it announced in the show notes as well and the likely announcements before the episode begins so people can make sure that they keep up to date and know that it's coming on the radar as well. So thank you again for taking your time to join me today. I know we had some scheduling issues because of time zones and what worked for you and what would have worked for me and default scheduling, but thanks for taking your time to join me. It was a pleasure talking with you and we'll have to get you back on and share more of your learnings as you progress in the community building over in India and building up that closure community and setting that foundation. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yep. Thank you, Proctor. I actually just remembered one thing that I forgot to mention, which is that we have opportunity grants at Enclosure. And that's something that we definitely want to repeat next year. So if there are people out there who are interested to come, but who might not have the financial means, then they can apply to us for an opportunity grant. And we want to try our best to make this a, a diverse conference and have people from all backgrounds attending. And that sounds like a great thing from everything I've heard about these opportunity grants and what they provide. So good to let people know. And I'm sure that you would not be opposed to other people wanting to help and support those opportunity grants. So I'm sure they can reach out to you as well when the time gets closer to help sponsor some of those things, I would assume. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you once again for taking your time, and I'll make sure to get those links and announcements in the show notes when the time comes closer for Enclosure to actually start ramping up again. So thanks again, and thank you for your time. Thank you, Proctor. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.